0: I'm sorry. I've got to, my coughs kind of been acting up a little bit, coming back. I uh, some of you guys may know. I in my spare time I helped coach a high school football team and had to yell at a couple of running backs last night for dropping my football in the middle of the game. And so um, throat's a little, little worn out. So um, want you to open up your Bibles to the Book of First Peter, Chapter Three. 1 Peter, Chapter Three. We'll start in verse thirteen we're continuing through the text today. And what Peter is gonna do, we're going through the the book of 1 Peter here, if you're new, but what Peter's gonna do today in the the verse that we're gonna see is he's gonna make a statement that is really so contrary to human thinking that it borders on the absurd. It's so contrary to our experience in life that it borders on the absurd. (laughs) Excuse me, he's making the statement that When you suffer in this life, you're you're blessed. When you suffer in this life, you're blessed. And again, that that statement goes against every fiber of our being and our thinking and our reality because I don't know about you, but I spend um, a good portion of every day of my life trying to avoid suffering, amen? I spend a lot of my time trying to get out, get away from suffering, I'll give you an example. I own, a, uh, I own a Schnauzer, which is a dog, and um, I love that dog. I'm a dog lover, she, she is my buddy, she's like one of my best friends, and every day of my life, and here's, here's why I really love this dog, because every day of my life, I come home from work, and there is only one part of my family that is really, really excited to see me, and that is my dog. When I come home, my kids, they're sitting on the couch, maybe, maybe, maybe I get a head nod, right? Like, what's up, hope, like that, and, uh, but that's it. But when I come home, my dog sees me. She loses her ever-loving mind and excitement to see me, and I love letting her get on the bed with me. Like, she, she snuggles with me, she licks my hand. I love this dog, but there's a problem, and that is my wife is not a big fan of my schnauzer. She's not a huge fan, and uh, she's even less of a fan of letting my schnauzer on the bed with me, And so whenever, you know, night time's coming and the dog always comes up and stands there and just looks at me, like she gives me that look like, hey, you let me up on the bed, I'll snuggle with you. And then I'm in a a point of tension at this point because I have to filter that decision through this filter. How much suffering am I willing to endure at the hands of my wife if I let this schnauzer on the bed? And every single time I make the decision not to suffer, right? And, and most, of, most of us, most of us, whether we think about it or not, admit it or not, we spend a good amount of time on a daily basis doing everything we can to avoid suffering. And so when Peter makes the statement that is so contrary to what our experience is, it, it, it's just kind of radical to us. It doesn't make a ton of sense when he says, when you suffer, you are blessed, Okay, now, it's important to understand that Peter makes a clarifying statement as to what kind of suffering actually produces blessing. Peter does not say that all suffering produces blessing. He says this, he's gonna say that, he says we are blessed when we suffer, listen, for the sake of righteousness. He's saying you're blessed when you suffer for the sake of righteousness. In other words, when you live your life for the person of Christ, when you walk in holiness and then you suffer or are persecuted because of that, the end result is always blessing. Now that's a really important distinction when he says you suffer because of righteousness sake. You're blessed. There's an distinction there because I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Here's the thing, you are not blessed if you're suffering because you're an idiot, right? You're, you're not blessed if you're suffering because you've done something really, really dumb in your life and suffering came because of it, there's no blessing in that. He's saying that with you, if you're persecuted, if you suffer because you are walking in holiness, that's when blessing comes. Now, it's important to remember that he is writing these words to a church that is experiencing suffering because they're Christians. That's why he's writing this letter First Peter. He's writing this to the church that is, is experiencing this extreme suffering because they live in a culture that looks a lot like today that's growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. And so Peter writes him a letter and he's gonna do two things. <clears throat> the first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna quote Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and he's gonna show why, he's gonna show, show us why blessing comes through suffering. He's gonna say, okay, here's why blessing comes through suffering, and he's quoting Jesus. And the second thing he's gonna do, which is really helpful, is he's gonna talk about what our response is, what our response One of the things I love about First Peter is not only does he kind of drop these theological truths, but he's very applicable. He says, okay, in light of this theological truth that blessing comes through suffering, okay, now suffering's gonna come. Here's what you and I do in response to the suffering. And so that's what we're gonna do today. <clears throat> we're gonna see what he means when he makes this radical statement, you're blessed when you suffer because of righteousness. And lastly, we'll look at what we're to do when that happens, all right? So let's jump into the first part of the text today. 1 Peter 3, 13, he starts off his discussion of suffering because of righteousness with a question. It's an interesting question. He asks these people, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what's good? He says, who is there to harm you? if you're zealous for doing what's good. He begins this discussion on blessing because of righteousness by asking a question. He say, hey, who out there is gonna harm you if you're just doing what's right, if you're doing what's good? And that, that's an interesting question to ask. Because if I'm these people in this first century church that's reading this letter, who by the way, are actually being persecuted because of their faith, because of doing good, when I read this, kind of the first thing that comes to my mind is, well Peter, I actually have a pretty long list of people who can harm me for doing what's right and what's good. Peter, my boss, wants to fire me because I'm a Christian. These people reading this in the first century church are probably thinking, well, people have stopped coming to my business because I'm a Christian. My neighbors don't ask us over for dinner. We're being ostracized in our neighborhood because we're a Christian. And oh, by the way, the government is trying to put me and my kids in jail because I'm a Christian. And so, yeah, Apostle Peter, there are lots of people out there who can harm me for me doing what's right and what's good. But in the next statement, it's also almost as if he anticipates that that was gonna be their answer. And watch what he says. Look at verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer. Yeah, there are gonna people that, people out there that are gonna cause you harm for doing good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, he says, you will be blessed. He he responds and says, yeah, I get it. There's gonna be all kinds of harm that actually might come your way because you're a Christian, but hear this believer. He says, but, there's a big but there. He says, the blessing you're gonna receive for that suffering is gonna far outweigh that suffering itself. Now, what Peter does here, when he's striding these people and say, yep, suffering is gonna come, but when it does, you're blessed. What he's doing, he's actually quoting Jesus. He's quoting Jesus. He's quoting Jesus in in Matthew chapter five, and so here's what I'm gonna do. Go ahead and turn there to Matthew chapter five. You have a Bible, (laughs) Matthew chapter five, and let's, let's read what Jesus says about this coming persecution because of righteousness, and start in Matthew chapter five, verse three. Here, and these are called the Beatitudes. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. They're the Beatitudes. These are, Jesus says these are the characteristics that are gonna show up in the life of a believer. He says first in Matthew 5, 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All that means is... Blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty. They realize their need for a savior. They realize their sinners. They realize that they need intervention from God or they will not be saved and theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> he says blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, that means unmixed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now look, in the last one, in the last beatitude, watch what Jesus says. In Matthew five ten. he says, blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for there's the kingdom of heaven. He says the exact same thing. In the last beatitude, Jesus talks about this coming persecution that will come in the life of a believer because of righteousness. As a matter of fact, <coughs> excuse me, in 2 uh, Timothy 3.12, the scripture actually promises you, believer, it actually promises you and me that if you desire to live a godly life, the guaranteed result will be you receive persecution for that. Now think about that. Probably everybody in the room will be like, yep, I desire to lead a godly life. If you're a believer, you're like, yep, I want to lead a godly life. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says here's what you can take to the bank. The result is if you actually go out there and do it, you live in righteousness, the result will be persecution. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing when you think about it that Jesus tells us, look, if you demonstrate a need for God, you say, Lord, I need you. If you're meek, which means strength under control, strength under peace, if you show meekness, if you're pure in heart, if if you're a peacemaker, you actually bring peace, if you show mercy, and if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the result of that is the world's gonna persecute you. It's a fascinating thing to think about. But Jesus says, I promise you, that's what's gonna happen. You're a peacemaker, you show mercy, you're, you, you, you love God, you follow God, you're gonna get persecuted. Now here's, here's a question, I wanna answer a couple questions here and we'll jump back in the text, but a couple questions I wanna answer is this. Here's the first one, why? Why, why in the world does, does the world wanna persecute believers for being meek, merciful, pure-hearted peacemakers? Why is the result of that persecution toward the believer? And John, uh, Jesus actually gives us the answer in John 8, 42. Don't turn there, just listen here. <coughs> Jesus is actually gonna explain to us, <clears throat> which I've never really thought about before till this week, but it makes a ton of sense, why persecution and suffering does come just because we're believers, all right? In John 8, 42, he says this. Jesus said to them, it's a group of people he's speaking to <clears throat> that were not following Christ, they refused to follow Christ. He says, hey, if God were your father, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And watch what he says next. He asks me a question. He says, why do you not understand what I say? Why do, Jesus has been teaching, and these people are like, that's dumb, that makes no sense. And then he asks the question, he says, why do you not understand what I say? And then he gives them the answer. It says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Jesus says, why do you not understand? Here's the answer, you can't bear to hear it. And then he gives them the answer about why they don't understand the word of God, and not only that, but they can't even stand to hear it. In verse 44, he answers the question of why that's the case. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now here's what Jesus just said, and this is pretty interesting. The point that he's making is that everybody here on earth, every person that's alive has one of two fathers. One of two fathers, either either God is your father or Satan's your father, it's one of the two. He's not saying that there's people that have God as their father, and then people that have Satan as their father, and then there's kind of this third group of people that are completely neutral. That's not what he's saying. His his point is either God is your father or Satan's your father. It's one of the two. And so, if his point is, look, if God is not your father, if God is not your father, in other words, every single believer out there in non-believer out there in the world, if God is not your father, number one those non-believers will not be able to bear the word of God. They will not be able to stand it. And two, Jesus said they're going to carry out the desires of their father, which is Satan. And so guys, when you walk out these doors today and you live your life in accordance to the will of your father, who is the Lord, you are living in a way that people who have Satan as their father absolutely cannot bear. You're you're living your life in a way that is in direct opposition to the will of their father. Right Now I want you to hear this. (coughs) Righteousness by its very nature, righteousness by its very nature is confrontational to a world that has Satan as their dad. It's confrontational even, even when, when your righteousness is not preached. In other words, not when you're walking around preaching about your righteousness, but you just live it out. What it does is it confronts and it exposes and it reveals people's wickedness that they have and they cannot bear it. I want you to think about this. I thought about this week, <clears throat> this, this week. Um, what was the very first murder in the world according to the Bible? The very first time somebody actually killed somebody else it was Cain who killed his brother Abel. Now here's a question, why? Why did Cain murder his brother Abel? <clears throat> was it because Abel just kept preaching at Cain and pointing out all the ways that Cain was sinning? That he kept just talking about, hey, Cain, I'm righteous, you're not. I'm walking in holiness, you're not. And Cain kills him, the answer's no. All in the world, Abel was doing was simply living a life that was honoring to God. He was offering the correct sacrifices to God and living, living a way that was honoring to him and Abel living that life of righteousness was this constant internal rebuke of Cain. It was this constant internal rebuke of Cain's unrighteous life and the result was it produced in Cain this uncontrollable anger and Cain killed him. <clears throat> I, was, uh, I thought of another example of this this week, and have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why um, so many people that are kind of professing atheists out there, how kind of the predominant attitude that they have towards Christianity is anger? Have you ever wondered why that is? Obviously not all atheists and obviously not all non-believers are angry at Christianity, but in in my experience, the the vast majority of people that are kind of professing atheists that I've encountered personally throughout my life and and, and definitely online are are profoundly angry at my belief in God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just today after the sermon, type in atheist on Twitter and just go look at some of these accounts where people are kind of professing atheists, and I want you to notice just the absolute, over-the-top anger toward the Christian faith. I mean, this week, um, I saw on Twitter, there was this United States Senator who quoted Matthew 5, 11, 12, the, the verses that I just read about being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and talks about, you know, you're blessed when people hurl insults at you on account of your name, or on account of Jesus' name. That's all he did. He didn't preach, he didn't comment, he didn't have a subtweet where he explained what that meant. He simply put in quotation marks the words of Jesus that you're blessed when people cast insults at you on account of the name of Jesus. He just, that's it, quote, the words of God. And he sent it out there. <clears throat> and people lost their minds. All he was doing was reading the words of Jesus and people flipped completely out. The, the 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 level of venom towards him simply quoting Jesus, saying, Blessed are you when people cast insults at you on because of my name was mind-blowing, and I'm reading all these responses and I kept thinking, Well, people, you're kind of proving Jesus' point right here. You know? <clears throat> but the question is why? <clears throat> why do they even care? Why are they so angry? You know, it can't it can't just be because We have a different belief system than them because they have a different belief system than me, and I'm not angry at them. You know, it 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 really, and and I don't mean to be offensive here at all. Just it it can't be believed. One of the things I hear a lot is, "Well, Christians have caused so much, so so much negativity and, and so much harm in the world." But you know, you look at people that are not genuine, real followers of Christ, and. They've caused a lot of harm in the world. And so, but, and, but I'm not mad at them. That's not my attitude towards the non-believer is one of anger. And so why? <laughs> why is this overwhelming attitude that atheists, specifically non-believers in general, convey towards Christianity, why is, it ang- why is it anger? And I think the answer in the scripture is pretty clear. The scripture teaches us that every single human being that's ever lived every one of them, not just believers, but every single person was created by God to be in relationship with him and honor him with their lives. That is why God put breath in every single person's lungs. Another thing the scripture says is that Romans, Romans promises us that the evidence of God is absolutely clear through creation. And that people deep down inside, even if they're not admitting it with their mouth, that deep down inside, they believe in the existence of a creator, because it is evident through creation, and so they are without excuse. And so people will say, "God, I had absolutely no idea that you were real." and God will go, "Yeah, you knew. You knew." Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes said that God has placed eternity in the heart of every man and woman, that there's an insatiable hunger for the eternal that God put in every single human being. And so every single human being longs for that hunger to be fulfilled by that which is eternal. So, so when a person who is willfully rejecting those truths and realities in their life encounters someone who is submitting to those truths and realities in their lives, that righteousness that they see, it confronts that rejection. It reveals that rejection of the truth. It reminds them of that rejection of the truth and the inevitable result will not be indifference. The inevitable result will not be indifference, but hostility. Christ likeness in you. Hear this. Christ likeness in you will always produce the same result that Christ likeness produced for the apostles. Christ likeness in you will always produce the same result that it produced in the early church. Christ likeness in you in the 21st century will always produce the same results that it produced for Jesus. Christ likeness in you in the 21st century will always produce the same result that is produced for every believer throughout of history. And that is persecution, eventually, persecution. <clears throat> and if what Jesus said is true, which it absolutely is, it's kind of scary. That's a scary thing to think about. If I actually just go live the way Jesus actually says to live, then the inevitable result in my life is gonna, means I'm gonna suffer. But that kind of leads us to the second question that I wanna answer today. And that is, what does Jesus say would be the result? <clears throat> what did Jesus say would be the result of when we suffer and are persecuted because of our righteousness. In Matthew five ten, watch what he says. He says, blessed are those, blessed are those who were persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of my name. Jesus says, when you're persecuted, when you suffer because of righteousness sake, you're blessed you're blessed and guys i think that begs the question what in the world does he mean that we're blessed when we suffer what's he talking about what how are we blessed how do we receive blessing when we're being persecuted because we live for jesus and in verse 12 he gives us the answer <clears throat> jesus said rejoice and be glad rejoice and be glad that's a crazy statement you're suffering you're being persecuted, rejoice, be happy. Why, he tells us, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. For your reward is great in heaven. Look at that word, great. He says, hey, persecution is coming, but when it comes, be happy. Because you have a reward in heaven and that reward in heaven is great. Now, <clears throat> I don't know exactly what that means or exactly what that's gonna look like, that, that we're gonna be greatly rewarded in heaven because of our suffering in this life for righteousness' sake because here's, here's my take on heaven. Like, I don't know what great reward means because here's my take on heaven. Y'all wanna know what my take on heaven is? Here's my take. I don't care what my rewards are when I get there. I just wanna get there, amen? I don't care. I don't care what my rewards are gonna be. Great, small, big, little, cool. I just wanna get in the house. Let me in the house, Jesus. If, if, if you know, here's the thing. One of the things that the scripture says is that in heaven, we're not gonna just be floating around in the clouds, but that, that God actually destroys this earth and he creates a new earth kind of in the likeness of the Garden of Eden. And so we're gonna live out eternity on this new earth, which is pretty cool when you think about it. And it's restored back to the way it was in the garden. And so one of the things that was true in the garden before the fall of men, man, is that we worked. But work wasn't a drudgery to us. It wasn't like something you got up in the morning and was like, ah, I gotta go to work today. Before sin came into the picture, work was a joy. It was an absolute utter joy. Well, that's, heaven's gonna be like, I really think we're gonna work in heaven because we worked in the Garden of Eden. And one of the things that I've asked of God, I should have for years ago when I preached on heaven, but one of the things I've asked God specifically for, because I think you can do this, I don't know if it's gonna come true or not, but I think you can ask God for stuff, and I said, God, when I get to heaven, I wanna be a farmer, that's what I wanna do. I don't wanna preach anymore, I wanna be a farmer. That just sounds really cool to me, like be, like have a vineyard, right, making some new wine, amen? And kind of the picture that I have in my mind is kind of like that scene in Gladiator, you know, that. Where he's walking, touching you know, the, the wheat stalks with his hands or whatever, and that's kind of the picture I have. And I just want to tend my, my, my crops for eternity. That sounds incredible to me. If I get to be in the presence of God and I get to tend my crops, I mean that sounds great to me. It sounds great. But here's the thing. <clears throat> A vineyard that looks like that scene from Gladiator that I get to farm from eternity is it's like the absolute best thing the greatest thing that my mind can conceive. That sounds like a great, capital G, great reward in my mind. But I have a feeling that my conception of the word great probably falls a little short than the creator of the universe's conception of the word great, amen? I have a feeling that my understanding of what great is gonna be probably falls a little short of when the guy that created the universe says, hey, great is your reward in heaven. And so Jesus' point here, his point here is look, the reward, the joy, the peace, the happiness, the fulfillment that you're going to receive in heaven is gonna absolutely blow the pain that you experience because of your suffering here on earth completely out of the water. And so when suffering because of righteousness comes and it will, Jesus says it's time to throw a party (laughs) because great is your reward. Okay, and so in light of what Jesus has taught us, then all of a sudden you read what Peter's saying to this early church and then all of a sudden it makes all the sense in the world. These people that are being persecuted in Peter 3.13, Peter asks them a question. Hey, now who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you for, for, for being zealous for what's good? And then he answers the question. But even if you should... Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, he says, you will be blessed. And now you know what that means. All right, real quickly here. I want want us to look quickly, and then we're gonna be done. I want you to look quickly at what Peter says that our response should be. He gets real specific. And he says, this is your response, because this is coming. Party time, because you're gonna be blessed greatly. But this is what you ought to do when it, when it does happen. All right, let's read this together, 1 Peter 3, 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then he says, step number one, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. And he takes it a next, a next step. He says, don't even be troubled by it. These people are probably like, man, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? I'm not even supposed to be troubled. I'm not supposed to even walk in fear at all. And and I wanna tell you guys that I wanna just confess to you over the last couple years of my life, to not fear a coming persecution because of righteousness is is not really been that easy for me. A couple of summers ago, I was invited um, to this conference. It was kind of an invitation only kind of conference and it was put on by this huge law firm that specializes in cases dealing specifically with the infringement of religious liberty. They, they, they excu- exclusively take cases where Christians are being persecuted because of a, of, a, of a religious conviction stance that they took and somebody sued them. And one of the examples that they gave us was a family that owned a pharmacy. It was a family-owned pharmacy in another state. And this family are devout Christians. They love Jesus, and and they chose as a as a family that owned this pharmacy. They chose not to sell the morning after pill. And the morning after pill is a drug that women can take. With I think I, I didn't really do the research on the pill, but I think it's like after 24 hours of having unprotected sex, it it, it terminates any possible pregnancy. Well, his family had a strong Christian belief against this particular thing. They they have a biblical belief that. That life begins at conception, and the biblical belief that all life is created in the image of God and therefore has value. And so, as a family, they made the decision that they were not going to sell this morning after a pill because of a religious conviction. And for the customers, and this is key, I thought, for the customers that wanted this drug, because there would be people that would come to their pharmacy, they would want this drug, they wouldn't sell it to them, but what they would do is they provided five locations of other pharmacies within a two-mile radius, five locations of other pharmacies within a two-mile radius that did offer this pill, where they could go and buy it. And what happened was somebody sued them. Somebody sued them. <clears throat> and then, I don't, remember how, I don't remember all the details of the courts and all that, but at some point in time, and at the U.S. government got involved, I think they lost the case, and they were forced as a pharmacy to sell this drug. And so after 30 years of being in business, they, they just shut down. They shut down. <clears throat> and there was over, check this out. There was over, they gave us a big booklet. There was over 1,000 cases going on in the United States just like that two years ago. Over 1,000 cases. Think about that for a second. A 1,000 separate cases where the United States government was, was stepping in and saying uh, to Christian businesses and Christian individuals, you have to, to do something that is contrary to what you believe the Bible says, and I walked out of that conference. I want to tell you, I, <clears throat> one of the overwhelming feelings that I was experiencing was fear. It scared me. I kept thinking, if, if this, if we live in a culture that's this, this hostile to Christianity now, what's it going to look like twenty years from now? You know, I, I thought about what about my kids. What about my church? What about my grandkids? What, you know, if, if this is what it's beginning to look like now, what is it gonna mean? What's it gonna look like? What is it gonna cost them to actually walk in righteousness over the, over the course of their lifetime? And it produces me a ton of fear. But, but, but here's the thing, this is, this is what the scripture from 2,000 years ago from 2,000 years ago, this is what the scripture is screaming out to us, it's saying, hey, do not fear. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the number one command in all of the Bible is do not fear. Scripture says, hey, don't even be troubled. Jesus said it this way, don't turn it quickly, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, hey, and, and by the way, do not fear. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill your body, but cannot kill your soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then watch this, this gets intimate and pretty amazing. Jesus is speaking, red letters here. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He says your God, God who is your dad, He knows even every bird that falls to the ground. And he says in verse 30, he says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, he says, Jesus says, fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. The reason that we're not afraid is because we have a dad who happens to be God, he's on his throne, and he knows your name, and he doesn't just know your name, but he knows every hair on your head, and what the scripture is saying right here is that you need to know something. Not only does he know you, but he values you. And so if you're walking through suffering because you are living for him, you need to not fear, you need to not be troubled, because God Almighty has your back, and there is coming a day where he's gonna make all of it right. So do not be afraid. At the end of the day, and I want you to hear this, <clears throat> what the scripture is saying is that fear is never to be the response of persecution and here's the reason. Because of the hope, because of the hope that we have in the coming blessing of the Lord. Now real quickly here, last part. First Peter 3, 14, watch what he says. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ as, as the Lord is holy. He's just saying, hey, the whole time through your persecution, you just need to remember that Christ is Lord. I think he's quoting Jesus again there from what I just read. But, it, but in your heart, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. And then watch this, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. Scripture says, this is our second response. First response, we don't fear, we're not even troubled. The second response is this, he says, "He says, church, believers, you walk in righteousness, suffering comes, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you about the hope that you have in you. I want you to notice something. I've never seen this till this week. And I think, it, I think it's pretty cool. I want you to notice what the scripture does not say there. The scripture does not say, always be prepared to make a defense for the existence of God when persecution comes. That's not what it says. The scripture doesn't say, always be prepared to give a defense against abortion when persecution comes. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, always be prepared to give a defense for the theological nuances of the biblical definition of marriage. That's not what It says scripture doesn't say always be prepared to give a defense for why a family pharmacy ought to have the constitutional right not to sell the morning after pill. It's not what it says. The scripture doesn't say always be prepared to give a defense for why it's unjust for you to be persecuted. That's not what the scripture says. <laughs> what the scripture said is always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that you have in the middle of your persecution. Now here's what, I'm not saying that as Christians we don't stand for what's right. I don't think that's the point, but here's what I am saying. I believe the scripture is teaching us that the hearts of a lost world are not going to be won by us arguing for our rights. I think what the Bible is teaching us is the hearts of a lost world are gonna be won when they see us walking through persecution because of Jesus, we do not fear, but we answer them in hope and they look at us. They say, how in the world are you doing that? How in the world are you not flipping out that things are getting really hard for your family and your church and your kids? Tell me about the hope that is within you. University students, I want to talk to you for just a second. There's a lot of you guys in in the room here today in a couple campuses around the city. I've never been one of these guys that's like, oh, this guy's fallen, and... It's gonna be horrible and all this, but, but here, here's the thing. I'll say this. From what I can see, because of the rate at which our culture is rapidly shifting towards non-belief, and it's palpable. If you, if you look at the studies and you look at the research, um, the trend toward non-belief is striking right now in the United States. And based on what Jesus said about you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, what what. Timothy said that that's the guarantee that that's gonna happen. I'm pretty convinced that in the course of your lifetime, it's gonna be increasingly difficult to be a Christian. And not everybody pays attention to this kind of stuff, but I do, and, and the level of cultural animosity that's kind of being poured out towards Christianity right now, in my opinion, has grown ex- exponentially in the last five years, maybe, maybe eight to 10 And I'm convinced that over the next 20, 30, 40 years, our society, I'm convinced of this. I hope I'm wrong. But I'm convinced of this, that our society is gonna look a lot more like that first century, what that first century church's society looked like than the society that I kind of grew up in as a a kid and a teenager. And so students, I want you to hear this. The time to make the decision that you are gonna be a follower of Jesus, no matter what, it's right now. I'm telling you what what I based on what I'm seeing and based on what Jesus says will happen in your lifetime, I really do believe that it's gonna cost you something to be a follower of Christ. I think it's gonna cost you something. Which Jesus said you ought to do. Jesus said you, you need to count the cost before you follow me. And up until recently, the cost of you following Jesus simply hasn't been that high. But I believe with all my heart that that's gonna change. And the time for you to decide that you're willing to pay the cost to be a follower of Christ is not when the decision comes, but right now. Parents of young children, parents of teenagers, do not prepare your children to live in a 1950s United States of America Christianity. That is not gonna be their reality. One of the greatest gifts you could ever give them is not just take them to church, not just make them church attenders, but one of the greatest gifts you could ever give them is to prepare them, to prepare them not to fear when persecution comes, to prepare them to know that when they are persecuted, they are actually blessed and great is their reward in heaven, to prepare them when persecution comes to honor Christ as Lord in their hearts, to prepare them when persecu- persecution comes to give a defense for the hope that is in them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the time to do that is right now. I'll end with this story and then I'll pray, but I, I, uh, I came across a story this week that I'd never heard before. There's a story of this man that he grew up in India. He was a part of the Meghalay tribe in India. And an English missionary had come to the surrounding area and this man from this tribe in India had heard this English missionary preach and he gave his life to Jesus. He became Christian. His family was also converted. The chief of his tribe heard of this man's conversion, heard of his family's conversion, he captured this man and his family, and he tied him up, and he looked at the dad, and he said, I'm gonna give you a chance to basically recant your faith, to say that you're not a follower of this Jesus, and if you will, I'll let you live, and if you don't, I'm gonna kill you and your family. The guy looked at the chief, and this was his response. He simply said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Chief turned, killed his wife and his kids right in front of him. Chief looks back at this guy and says, I'm gonna give you one more chance. If you'll turn from your belief and your following of this Jesus, I will still spare you And with tears in his eyes, the guy looked at the chief and said, though none go with me, I still will follow. And the chief killed him. The chief, days later, was so moved by this man's unwavering faith in this this Jesus that he tracked down this missionary from England, he found him, and instead of killing the missionary, he asked him a question. He said, how in the world was this man able to hold on to his faith in this person called Jesus? Even though I killed his family right in front of him and then I killed him. And the missionary gave that chief a defense for the hope that was in that man and the chief gave his heart to Christ and brought a revival in that entire village and and the story got passed down for the next hundred or so years and in 1959, an American hymn, hymn writer composed a song that would be made popular by Billy Graham and would be sung at Billy Graham's Crusades all over the world. And for those of you that grew up in church and are a little older, you probably have sung this hymn before. It's simply titled, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I've I sung it a thousand times growing up and I haven't sung it for years. And I called Aaron Ivey this week and I said, hey man, we're talking about persecution. Persecution's coming and, And we're talking to all these young people that probably have not been persecuted that much and so this is probably not super applicable to them but I know that they need to make a decision to follow Jesus no matter what because there's probably coming a day in their life where it's gonna cost them something to be a follower and so can we sing that song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus? And Aaron said, yep. And so he's been working on it all week and we're about to sing it and here's the thing, we're gonna stand up, we're gonna sing that song. And when you sing it, I, I want it to be more for you than just a song that you sing before you leave here and, and go eat lunch. Let it be a declaration over your life. and More than that, let it be a declaration over your future. Let it be a prayer to the Lord. Lord, I, I may not be experiencing now, but one day, It might, your scripture says it will. One, let me be a person that walks in righteousness too. When persecution comes, let me be somebody that no matter what follows you. All right, let's pray together. One of the things I think would be amazing to pray today is and this is a tough prayer to pray you would pray that God would give you the ability and the power to live in a way that is holy and righteous to the point that a lost world take notices. takes notice, come what may. And that the response to that holiness and righteousness is one of persecution, anger, hostility. That he would give you the ability not to fear. But to respond in the hope that is yours because of the cross, because of heaven that's coming and then your response be in gentleness and kindness. Father, I pray that this song that we sing today in many hearts by the power of your spirit would be more than a song, but it would be our prayer. And God, I pray you would answer that prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church, let's stand together.